Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 184 for February 19th, 2009. Your questions, Steve's answers number 60. Security Now is brought to you by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. And by Go to My PC. Wherever you go, access your PC and all of your files, programs, and email remotely with Go to My PC. For a free trial of this award-winning service, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. Time for security now. We're going to talk about all those things that happen on the net that can scare the pants off of you. Your privacy, your security. Steve Gibson is here. He knows more about it than practically anybody because he is on the front lines. GRC.com is his site, the creator of Shields Up, the discoverer of spyware. <laughs> it's like Christopher Columbus. He he discovered spyware. Hey, Steve Gibson, how are you today? Hey, Leo. It's great to be with you again, as always. Great. Today, it's a Q&A section, a segment. Isn't yes. It? Yeah. Episode 184, and this is our 60th, 60. Uh, that's a decimal 60. I've been... I've been deep into octal notation recently because I've been learning about the PDP-8, uh, like relearning. It's funny because the, the, the book I was reading says Introduction to Programming, and it was sitting on the coffee table at Starbucks. And, and the baristas there pretty much know me and sort of have a sense for where my area of expertise is. I've, you know, I've been there for years. And, wh- and one of them looked at it and says, Introduction to Programming. You're reading an introductory book? <laughs> And, and, you know, it, uh, deck printed it on non acid free paper. So it's very yellowed and uh, age looking. And I said, well, I said, let me put it this way. I first read this book when I was 16 years old. (laughs) It's an oldie, but goodie. (laughs) So I am rereading it and, uh, and enjoying it. And in fact, uh, that is a, perfect opportunity for me to mention that I'm going to be joining Ray Maxwell over on his podcast um, that you and he do. I guess you record it live on Thursdays. Yeah, we do. It's called Maxwell's House. Maxwell's it, House. Yeah, it's really fun. It's 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on uh, Thursdays. And it's, you know, Ray has, Ray is like you. He's an autodidact and he's, uh, and he's got wide ranging interests. So it covers. And I had no idea he was uh, like a computer developer. Oh, yeah. I was listening to him talking oh, yeah. about the old days, and it's like, my goodness. I mean, he and I, there's a tremendous overlap exactly. between, you know, what he's done and, and what I've done. I just thought he was Mr. Photography. Oh, gosh, no. That's, you know, that's the hobby. So uh, he, yeah, it's, it's fun. And so, yeah, I, so you two are going to do a uh, old timers show. On February, <laughs> is it the 28th? I'll it's check. not this coming. It's not 26th. the Thursday that this show airs. Yeah, the twenty sixth, the week from the twenty sixth. So I wanted to uh, I wanted to advise our listeners if they want to listen live, they can certainly do so. It'll be uh, Thursday afternoon at two o'clock Pacific, five Eastern on Thursday the twenty sixth. Yep. Um, and then of course they could also you know d- explicitly grab that podcast. What we're going to be doing is 
talking about old times, old time computer technology well, we stuff. Don't, we don't do a podcast of it, Steve. It's just live. But I think that oh, one. No kidding. Yeah. So you're not you're not recording it. Well, we record them but we, and we play them back as reruns. But we have, you know, this is a video show and we haven't yet uh, really figured out how to do those. But um, this is the this might be the uh, the exception. And if we do it, what we'll probably do is put it out on YouTube or, or somewhere. But I'll make sure people know where they can see it again. Well, and, and of course, we have Odd like- TV and Odd TV uh, at ODTV.me records many of these shows and makes them available. For, uh, for, okay. Know, well, I would definitely like to get the audio and I'll, oh, yeah. I'll host it on my server because I'm oh, going to, you know, spend the time to, to ha- anyway. So he and I are going to hang out and talk about sort of do a nostalgia computer episode uh, that he's imminently qualified for. And, you know, I, I'm, I've been <laughs> living in the past a lot recently myself. So um, I think it'll be really, we're really going to have some fun. You know, what we could do is, uh, is release it as a auxiliary, auxiliary, auxiliary. We could extra, an extra show on this that's, feed. Yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> we'll just, I mean, we'll why just, not? Yeah. And so if you are already a subscriber to the security now feed, whether it's an iTunes or your podcatcher of any kind, uh, we'll just have a, you know, it'll be episode 185 dash a or something. And like yeah. That. You'll just get it. And if you don't want it, you can throw it out. It. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Perfect. That's what we'll do. That'll solve that. So an extra security now next week. Yeah. So um, anyway, I'm I'm excited about it. And uh, as I said, I've I've been studying these older machines and I've I've I realize and appreciate some things I never appreciated when I was 16. You know, from the advantage point now of looking back. uh, How many years is that? Thirty three or something? (laughs) Long time. Um, Yeah. Um, so it's going to, I've got some interesting observations. I think people will, and I certainly Ray and I will have fun talking about it. And I think our listeners will find it interesting too. Why do they work in octal? I mean, isn't, well, we know that binary is the natural, uh, and, state and of a computer. And that's the hard, well, and that's, that's of course, I, I was, I was looking at six zero Q and a 60 and that's the hardest problem I'm having is, I mean, I, I live in hex, unlike, you no, know, almost all programmers and now. Hex is base is, 16. Who live in decimal? Yes, I mean I'm my world is hexadecimal because I'm programming in assembler. But but back then the the machines used three bit groupings, so you had zero through seven instead of four bit groupings. And and DEC produced many computers with bizarre word lengths. There were some that were eighteen bits long, some were thirty six bits long, some were twelve bits long, and and sixteen. And they mean and and so they, you know, they they had multiples of nine and multiples, and and so so it made sense to have like if you had a if you had an eighteen bit word, you'd do multiples of three bits in order to represent that. Um, anyway, so it, it's difficult for me because I'm so used to a computer representation being hex that I mean I've it's been interesting because I've I haven't appreciated the degree to which I translate hex now automatically into binary and into decimal it's just it's automatic but if it's octal that automatic reflex is wrong and so i'm having to catch myself constantly say whoa wait a minute this is not you know 200 when i'm seeing it in octal is you know very different number than it is in hex so that's that's really uh really geeky <laughs> but very <Yeah>. cool <laughs> oh but i got more for you in two weeks <laughs> i can't wait i got some serious geekdom before we get to the security news of the day i know there is some and uh also of course any errata we want to uh, talk about from previous episodes uh, and to our questions and answers i want to mention go to my pc the folks at citrix are uh, are good sponsors on the show we we love them and we want to 
thank them for their support on the show. Go to my PC from the folks at Citrix is the way, probably I think the best way that you can access uh, your a computer from another computer, remote access. Typically, it'd be your office computer from home. It doesn't have to be home. It can be anywhere you can get online. Uh, because the the beauty of this is almost, it's like a web application. Let's say you're at an internet cafe and they're using, I don't know, they're using Linux or a Mac or Windows, but maybe Windows 98. And you, you know, you've got a nice shiny new Windows Vista machine at home. How would you access that? You go to gotomypc.com on their computer, you surf to it, you, uh, you enter in your secure username and password, and there on the screen is your office computer. A 128-bit encrypted connection, very secure. We were talking last week about issues with remote access protocol in Windows, uh, in VNC, not in GoToMyPC. This thing is rock solid. And now, no matter, even if you're in a sketchy little dive internet cafe in the middle of nowhere, you're securely surfing the net, accessing your office email, running a program on your office computer, accessing network resources. If you're on a your laptop, you could drag and drop files from the office computer to your laptop. I mean, it's really remarkable. The latest version, version 5, is so fast, it's just mind-boggling, even on a kind of weak internet connection across the globe. Here's the deal. Best way to find out what GoToMyPC can do for you is to try it free. We've got a 30-day free offer. Go to GoToMyPC.com, <clears throat> GoToMyPC.com slash security now. And you, before the show's over, you'll have it set up practically before the commercial's over. It's very quick. Just a couple of minutes. Security Now. Special URL is go to mypc.com slash security now. Easy, secure, the award-winning go to my PC. Just got PC World's World Class Award again for best remote access software. Find out why. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support uh, of the Security Now show. So, Steve, dare I ask, are there any news in errata from... Uh, well, yes, no? we have lots of errata and a little bit of news. It's been a relatively quiet security week since um, last week when we had the big uh, Apple second Tuesday of the month update. Hallelujah. In this case, um, the only real big security news is Apple. Um, there is a new Mac OS X update and Java update. Um, I yeah, think I got the those. Mac, uh, yeah. The Mac was about 44 megs. They fixed a whole bunch of problems, more than two dozen security flaws. There was an arbitrary code execution flaw in Safari's RSS handling. There was an information disclosure flaw in Apple's remote events, uh, denial of service flaw in the AFP server, um, arbitrary code execution in core text, and a bunch of other things. So definitely something that Mac users will want to make sure they get. And they didn't really talk about what was what they fixed in Java. They just said addresses security and compatibility issues. So, you know, they never say much. Things. They're very no. tight lipped about no. that kind of thing. Um, what do other, you think of that? I think I think their thinking is we don't want to say too much because we don't want to tell people what we're doing. On the other hand, I would really like to know what they're fixing. Yes. And what they fact, haven't fixed more to the point. It's my feeling is that is that, you know, we're used to Microsoft giving a relatively full disclosure of what's going on and of course this has come back to bite microsoft so i think apple is saying uh you know we're gonna fix it and why do they really need to know i mean like you might argue that the typical mac user being less you know uh screws and knobs and widgets you know just wants to know that they're secure i I don't think that's true anymore i think a lot of programmers and techies use macs 
Yeah, well, it, it, as I look around Starbucks, I am yeah. seeing a, a clear yeah. shift towards Macintoshes. Although I'm, you know, I'm right next to UCI, so it's we're in student land there too. Well, I mean, because the Macs come with all the programming languages and so forth, I think, and and it's a Unix uh, and yeah. a terminal. I think a lot of geeks have kind of shifted shifted over to the Mac uh, platform. Yeah, and they they want to know. I mean, I you know, especially because it, it, it's actually related. A lot of the Mac software is Unix software, uh, so some of these patches. And some of these exploits are in the Unix software. And, and if you know of a problem, for instance, in the version of Bind that OS X is using, you want to know if they've patched that or not. And right. I guess you could figure it out, but it's nice to have a list. Right. The, um, the only real interesting security news I have, aside from Apple, was just a, a note. Oh, a yabba-dabba-doo. There's a yabba-dabba-doo. I'm going to talk about that a little bit um, when, I, when I talk about SpinWrite later. But... Um, there was a uh, the trial ha- has started in Stockholm of the four founders of Pirate Bay. Yeah, it's um, closely watched by a lot of us. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what happens. Um, they're facing charges of accessory and conspiracy to break copyright law. Their defense is that the software is not stored on their servers, so they're not breaking the copyright law. Thus. You know, they're not being sued for copyright violation, but rather accessory to and conspiracy to break copyright law. Um, the lawsuit uh, is seeking about $14 million U.S. in damages and interest. Um, it's estimated that Pirate Bay has about 25 million users, if you can believe that. I mean, that's just amazing to me. And uh, if, I guess, based on the the nature of the charges... If they were convicted, these four guys could face sentences of up to two years in prison and fines as of, of as much as one hundred eighty thousand dollars. So, um, the the only thing that is I have found annoying about them. I mean, I recognize the reality of, of software piracy and the way the internet works is just, and I'm sure you've seen this too, Leo. Is the brazenness uh, of these guys. I mean, you know, all kinds of companies, large and small, have sent them letters asking that their software be removed, <laughs> and they post them and laugh at them, yeah. saying, nanny, 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 you know, you can't get us. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. The first day of the uh, trial was a, a couple of days ago, and they already yep. have thrown out one of the charges um, because they couldn't prove they had a... a <laughs> I think the prosecution is fairly inept. They had, uh, un- they were unable to prove that the actual that the torrents they were sh- the torrent files they were showing actually were on Pirate Bay, and there was no evidence that they were. So the judge said, uh, "Hmm, <laughs> I guess I guess that one's out." So now yeah. the only the only uh, charge remaining is making available of copyrighted works. You know, to be honest, I think it's going to be a very tough one to prove because they don't make available copyrighted works. All they publish is this little tiny torrent metafile, right? I don't know. I don't know how you. I don't know how you prosecute that. Yeah, I mean, I don't wish them any ill. I just, I, I, I don't. Certainly, obviously, I don't condone software piracy. I'm a person. You know, when you hear that yabba dabba do, it's because an honest person purchased a copy of Spinrite. Yeah, and, and I'm. I guarantee you that Spinrite is one of the things, one of the torrents on Pirate Bay. I haven't looked, but I wouldn't be surprised. Everything else is. Yeah. So you're. You know, these guys are stealing from you, uh, too. Now I have my own. Horrific PayPal story. Oh no! Not not just a a you know a a caller in. This is something I stumbled on that is a complete dongle bypass. 
Believe it or not. Okay. Because that dongle we use uh, oh. seems to secure PayPal better because, you know, it's we have a, to enter that number in on that only I have that dongle. And, yep. Multi-factor authentication. And in this case, the second factor is a one-time password that gives you, you know, proof against keystroke loggers or somebody, you know, looking at, at, at what you're typing in and then going and trying to use it because right. it will have been used and it they it expires. Um I've been buying a lot of things off eBay. You know, I'm in the antique or vintage uh, <laughs> computer mode at the moment. Um, thanks to you having started me off by holding up that plane of core memory. And I thought, <laughs> I got to get some of that. <laughs> get me that. I got to get Before it that. goes away. So, and that I stumbled back into, you know, deck, the, the world of deck and my, the, my first mini computer, the PDP-8 and, and, and then the 11. Um, <laughs> Boy, two in a row. Well, okay. I, I, I'm I'm going to hold off talking about that till till I get there. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so I w- so I've been buying a lot of things from eBay, and eBay, of course, is closely affiliated uh, to putting it mildly with PayPal, and and so you, um, and so you know, all the eBay sellers want you to use PayPal in order to to uh, complete the purchases. So I I I went to pay for something. And um, went to the, to, to the sort of the summary screen where this is what it's going to be. And here's the shipping costs and so forth. And, so, and you're still sort of in eBay land. And when you, you click to confirm that to go over to PayPal. So I did that, went to the PayPal screen, which asked me for my username and my regular password, uh, the first factors of authentication, which I, I entered. Then I clicked login. And it took me to the, it recognized in its database that I had these security tokens associated with my account. And I, so I looked at that screen. I thought, wait a minute. I had meant to add a comment to the purchase I was making. There's a, you know, two screens back when you're very, when you're agreeing that this is the price and shipping and so forth, there's an option to send a comment to the purchase to the to the seller and I, I don't remember what, what it was but i so i hit back screen and went to the login page and back again and got back to the ebay page opened up the little dialogue area where i could put a comment in and type something to the guy then i clicked on confirm this time when i went to the ebay login page the fields were grayed out it you know because i had done that already so i clicked login bang and I was at eBay, logged in, never having to use my football. Whoa. So, and I did it. it I and not by, asking security questions either. No. Um, <sighs> it happened once before. And then yesterday I remembered that it had happened. And I had an, and so I deliberately duplicated it. So I've done it now twice. I don't know for sure how far back is necessary to go. I went back two screens it may ne- only ne- be necessary to go back to one oh, where boy. those the login fields were grayed out and then clicking login might jump you over. My guess is that would um, next time I buy something, I'm going to try that. So I'll you think it's something that's it. been cached. Well, it just means there's a bad implementation. I mean, yeah. we, we keep seeing e- example after example of of people at PayPal just not having their act together from a programming standpoint and and you know and and also from a security philosophy standpoint but here i mean this is something 
where you just it bypasses the whole requirement of of entering any sort of a second authentication credential. Not good. <sighs> What's well, a handy tip though? Because <laughs> if I forget my key, I can, I can get in. <laughs> There's a handy There's tip a handy for you. Tip. How to bypass oh, all the security at PayPal? Goodness. Just in case you forget uh, your password. Yeah. Wow. Um, many listeners have thanked me for my mentioning and recommendation of Cat Mouse, the little the little yes. um, Windows scrolling utility. I mean. The people are just as nuts over it as I am. So I just wanted to acknowledge all the people who wrote and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I would have never found out about this if it weren't for you mentioning it. It's changed my life. I mean, there, there are people who have, like, they've changed their habits where they're deliberately now scrolling windows that are behind other windows. Like, they can see part of it, but they don't have to, like, make the windows come forward. So they just put the mouse over it, scroll that one, then go back to the window where they were actually working. So, I mean, it's it's been a huge life-changing event for a lot of our listeners. I just wanted to thank them all for the feedback that they appreciated that. Um, Last week was the first episode of Dollhouse that I mentioned, uh, the Josh Whedon's new series. I just wanted to say that I was kind of underimpressed, underwhelmed. Yeah, uh, you were not alone. I didn't see it, but a number of people said, "Eh, eh." yeah, it just doesn't grab me. And, but but in saying that, I wanted to say that my absolute number one favorite show on television is now, and has been for some time, but I haven't mentioned it again, Fringe. Is it back? Oh, never left. It, it, we're in the first season, and it is just, it, it, I look forward to it every week, more than any other show on television. Terminator sort of seems to have lost its way. They're running around in circles every week, and I don't really know where it's going. <laughs> Um, but you know, and, and anyway, but fringe for what it's worth. I mean, I'm, I know there'll be listeners who are like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I agree completely. Maybe there'll be people who disagree, but I just love it. I think it is really well written and, uh, it's another JJ Abrams production. I think JJ Abrams, I'm pretty sure. Um, and it's just spectacular. I love the writing. I love the, the casting. And last week, this episode with the, the, the light box, the episode was titled ability it a whole nother layer of story arc was unveiled. It's like, oh goodness, I hope this, you know, this show is doing well enough to be continued because I'm really enjoying that hour of television. Yeah, uh, or forty minutes after TiVo gets through with it. So <laughs> forty minutes. It's and true. then it's true. Um, uh, on the topic of collectibles, I have an offer for some lucky listener or listeners. Um. A, a listener of ours who's also jumping in with the spare time gizmos, per, you know, building the PDP-8 kit, uh, Lance Reichert um, said, he wrote and said, I have an Osborne 1 late model light blue case and a K-Pro 4, both in storage, with bundled software and manuals, plus several programming languages, as well as symbolic math package. The Aussie even has the original box and packaging. Could you please connect me with someone who might be interested in these free for the cost of shipping machines? He says, I already checked Digibarn and neither is on their list of machines they're looking for. And so um, I wrote back and I said, well, why don't you create a throwaway email account that you can use? And I will give everybody on who's listening to security now your that throwaway email account so that um, they can contact you if they're interested. And so his email account is he, it's Gmail. 
It's kpro.iv, K-A-Y-P-R-O dot I-V, as in kpro4, at gmail.com. And anybody who is willing to pay the shipping cost for either this uh, late model Osborne 1, uh, which was a little oh, CPM machine. Wow. Huh? I'd love to have that. Well, you can have it, Leo. I'm, I'm sure Lance would just send it. I wonder what the shipping cost would be, though. That, that was a... That, that- Quote portable was thirty pounds. <laughs> well, that, yes, that will mean that. that remember that the, the 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 term luggable was coined yes. for that machine, or maybe it was the compact. I wanted that compact. Osborne so badly. Does he have a K Pro two? Is that yeah, what he, an Osborne one and a K Pro four is wow. the both of them in storage. You know, if you if you could you display them somehow. Well, that's the thing. I think that, yeah, they, I don't, my problem is, uh, unlike you, uh, while I would love to have a computer museum in here, I don't really want, <laughs> I could be bulging at the e- at the seams yeah. here with all the stuff that I would love to have. And that's a bulk, both of those are bulky units. That Osborne yeah. had a little tiny screen. That was a time, but the K-Pro was bigger. It was nice. Yeah, right. The, and the, 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 the Osborne, I was, what, it was like an eight inch diagonal. Yeah, it was teensy. Little micro and it was, you know. But it was 80 by 24, I think, wasn't it? Or yeah, no? I'm sure that, well, I'm sure it was 80 it by 24 be. characters. Yeah, yeah. Probably text. I don't know. I don't remember if, if it did graphics. I'd, I'd no, be surprised. No, 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 no graphics. It was just a CPM machine. Yeah. So probably just text. Yeah. Yep. And the K, and they, and they came with, as did the K Pro, WordStar. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, and I now careful, Leo. I'm still using WordStar keystrokes for all of my editing. <laughs> Control. Wait a minute. Don't tell me. Control K S to save. Uh, Is that right? Control K V. Yes. 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 And Some and never you, leave and, the I mean, mind. What I love about it was that your your pinky sat on the control key, which is now where everybody has moved the shift lock. Right. Which, which is, is really just frustrating. Yeah. The dumbest thing. When yeah. was the last time you ever hit shift locked on purpose? Right. I mean, it's just. Oh, gosh, I always I map it to the control key. Yes. Actually, there is a simple little registry hack yeah. you can use that'll that'll map it um, in in Windows machines. Yeah. So it is the exactly. And so both my shift lock and my control key are control keys. But yeah, I just I mean it's it's the definition of a perfect UI because it disappears. I just will the cursor to go or the screen to scroll, and my left hand does it for me using <laughs> the the control key and the little. The little, little, you know, the alphabetic keys over in that area. But so, you're ma- you don't have a program that does it automatically. You have to map the keystrokes to whatever program you're using. To no, well, in my case, I'm still using Brief, which is an Brief, old DOS, yeah, yeah. 16-bit DOS box editor, and I've completely rewritten it. Right. Brief is, has a Lisp-like macro language, which I customized about 20 years ago, and it's, you know, <laughs> and still if, running strong. If you tried to change it one line today, you'd probably, you'd probably break the whole thing. I'm sure there's oh, yeah. no way you could look at that and say, I know what it's doing now. I'm not touching <laughs> it. Brief was so great, I did, You could do anything. I did also, yeah. um, I, I, um, uh, a person posted in the GRC Spinrite News Group, uh, really kind of a fun and, again, different sort of um, testimonial, uh, he, the, the subject was, thank you, Spinrite. He posted on January 6th and he said, okay, I'm sure you're all sick of thank yous. And I guess he's speaking now to the, everybody in the news group. Um, but this disc just saved me a lot of time, even though it didn't touch the drive. He said, I bought Spinrite a while ago to support Steve and security now. Oh, so he's a security now listener also, but never had the need to use it until last week with the Christmas shutdown. I was looking to get out and away on the last workday, 
but I got stuck with a service call to one of the offices with a computer hard drive failure. The staff there are actually pretty good. So when they say it's a hard drive failure, I tend to believe them. Anyway, I go there, boot the computer, and it comes up with non-system disk message. So I can see so I can see some time being wasted recovering data that should have been stored on network drives that are backed up and not on the actual PC. Oh well. I popped in Spinrite and it comes up with a cabling error message. A quick Google didn't really come up with much, but I had a few days to turn this unit around, so I posted the question on GRC's news groups. Within a day, I got a reply to check the cable. So I popped out I popped the box and reseated the SATA cable and he says parens they should design these so you have the option of connectors locking in and I rebooted the computer came right up windows loaded and it all works nothing was lost wow needless to say they walk they walk in on the first day of work and are impressed that I sorted it all out over the Christmas break, and even more so when I mentioned the mystery disc that diagnosed the problem. I guess he means Spinrite. So just one more for the record. Thank you, Steve. And even though Spinrite never really touched the drive, it was, it was still worth every cent. Signed, Tim, in Perth, Australia. And the, what Spinrite does is, this is sort of a consequence of the product's maturity over time, I remember clearly adding this in Spinrite 3.1 because we, we were seeing instances where people were running Spinrite when they didn't really need Spinrite. A classic was that their BIOS had lost its drive settings. And so they would run Spinrite even though there was nothing wrong with their drive. The, prob- no, the reason their, their OS wouldn't boot was the BIOS had lost its drive settings. And so I added code to check the BIOS drive settings and tell them, hi there, uh, you probably don't need Spinrite. Thank you very much, though. Um, but here's what the problem is. And I would, you know, take them through fixing that. Well, one of the other things that was happening was that cables were becoming unseated. And there is a protocol in um, from the IDE drives forward, which does a CRC of the data transfer across the cable. And so I added some code in Spinrite. Of course, and if the cable's loose, there's really nothing wrong with their drive. It's, it's an electrical problem. So I added some code in Spinrite to test the cable separately from testing the drive. And that's been in there ever since. So, and of course, it's a problem running Spinrite if your cable's flaky because right. we're testing, you know, we're like trying to correct electrical errors rather than than magnetic data errors so you know that's been a real boon to spinrite users and of course this just fixed tim's problem which wasn't with the hard drive but rather was with the interconnection of the hard drive to the motherboard very cool so if you test it do you will you warn yes spinrite pops up and says wait before we go any further, yeah. you've got a problem with your cabling. That's so cool. Fix that and then try again. <laughs> I wish more software would do stuff like that. How yeah. so you could tell cuz it's kind of distinctive? Well, um yeah, I'm I'm able to transfer data back and forth across the cable to the hard drive's buffer without actually reading or writing the hard drive. And I can pick up CRC errors in in the transfer. So you know separate. it's not the drive, you know it's exactly. the com- connection. Oh, exactly. very interesting. 
That's yeah. so. so it's, see, it's little things like that that make that really make you an exceptional programmer. I mean, I think that's really cool. But it's because well, you're using your head every time and you're thinking about this. Well, and with Spinrite three one, I was it was a major rewrite. It took a long time, but I was committed to doing everything I knew I could possibly right. do in that program. And you know, I have the advantage also of being the boss. So the boss is the boss is never annoyed with me right. that it's it's not you know done. It's not going to ship because I haven't put in the cable check software <laughs> yeah. algorithm. Yeah, and in, in fact, um, I got into trouble with my wife at the time because Spinrite three one was really late, and I uh, she came home from work one day and I was jumping up and down all excited because I had invented this brand new way of doing surface testing, and she was an attorney. And not really into computers right. at all, which was fine with me. I was happy to have that be my little world. But I, but I just wanted to. I was sharing my excitement over this really phenomenal um, surface analysis system that I had come up with that afternoon. And so, she, when she finally understood what I was talking about, she said, "Wait, wait, 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 S- stop! Um, you're telling me that you're putting something new in this." And I, I thought, "Oh." <laughs> And I said, uh, well, yeah, but I always knew I was going to get around to doing this. I just hadn't gotten to it yet. And she said, Steve, you already have their money. It doesn't matter what you send them. And <laughs> Ooh, I, that's an attorney talking. <laughs> I just thought, boy, have I made a mistake. <laughs> you went, oh, uh, I and I, I explained point. to her that the reason I had everyone's money who were waiting for me to ship this upgrade was that they knew when I got it done, it would be everything I could possibly make it. And so, you know, I wasn't doing this for the money. I was doing it to create the best product I knew how to create. And uh, anyway, I'm no longer married. <laughs> I'd break up with her, too, over that. Yeah, well, Steve, you already have their money. Why make it better? I know. I just, I thought, you know, the reason I have it is that everyone trusts me to do the best job I can. Yeah. This is why I don't, I don't talk about twit with my wife. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, we've had a couple yabba dabba do's that we've heard in the background. Yeah. What's that all about? Well, that, as we know, that's when someone purchases a copy of Spinrite. Um, because I've got systems here that are monitoring our, our, our network. Uh, health and the, what's going on with the server over um, at level three, where our, our data center is, our, the, the facility we use. Last week, I muted that as I normally always do and, have, I, and as I historically have. It, oh, there's another one. Wow. Um, um, that, I have to say, that's, that's more than I've ever heard before. In one. Well, and this is the point that I was going to make is that we had I didn't mute it the week before. Right. I muted it last week, but I noticed that there seemed to be an unusual number of sales. People are, are trying were, to get on the show. Yes, that's <laughs> what I think. And if so gonna, I felt if you're going to buy the product, buy it during between eleven and one Pacific time on Wednesdays. <laughs> you'll get a yabba dabba do and i could imagine somebody on on twit live listening live clicking the purchase it button and then hearing yabba dabba do come out and that's like hey that's my yabba dabba so you've come up with a remarkable new way to sell product (laughs) 
well, it wasn't deliberate. And I mean, I've, I'm sort of self-conscious and embarrassed a little bit. But I think so you should I, turn it up a little bit. I, we so just I barely it, hear it. So I muted it last week. And there were like, what seemed to be, I mean, again, it's anecdotal. Maybe it's just my imagination, but there seemed to be an unusual number, a concentration of purchases during the time we were recording Security so Now. I feel guilty because of the people last week didn't get their yabba dabba dabba. That's exactly where I was headed. Was I then I felt badly that people, you know, bought Spinrite hoping for the yabba dabba do treat and they didn't get one. So. We're not muted this week, and we won't mute it next week because if there's a week delay in people hearing the podcast and then saying, oh, good, I'm going to get my own yabba dabba. Steve, so, I've always said, don't. not only should you not mute it, you should turn it up so we can really hear it. And if it goes on, you know, if you get 100 during the show, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> And in well, fact, if I can only think bit. of, a, I'm going to, if I could figure out, you got to show me the code. Cause if I could figure out a way to have a yabba dabba do go off every time somebody donates to twit, I think it would be a very smart thing to do. Seems a little exploitive to me. I, no, I, it's a, it's, if somebody's going to buy it anyway and they want to hear their uh, purchase go through their own purchase. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great idea. I should have, I might put, I might figure out a way. I guess I could do that. Wait a minute. Let me think about that. Cause I get an email from, uh, PayPal. It's a little bit of a lag, though. You really want to have it right when you press that button. Yeah, for me, that's what it is. They yeah. they push the button, and within a second, I get a yabba dabba do at this end. It's like you know, they ring the bell when somebody gives them a tip. It's it's. I think that works. It's just psychology. People want a little extra, little shout out. Well, they get it here. Cracks me up. <laughs> Whether they want it or not. Yeah, because I've never heard. We just we had three in the in half an hour. I've never heard that many before. Yeah, and I think now we're gonna have a few more. Well, before we do our questions, because we have 12 good questions for you all, I am going to... Neat feedback, as we always get from our listeners. Yeah. I just, there were 374 pieces of mail since I last pulled them down, and uh, yeah. Yeah. They're saying they can't hear it on a Twit Live. They want you to turn up the Yabba Dabba's. Oh, goodness. So while, <laughs> while, I'm talking, while I'm talking about our friends at Nerds on Site, if you want to turn that up, you go right ahead. Nerds on Site is IWantToBeANerd.com. You know, I've been talking about Nerds on Site. We have for some time, I think a couple of years. I know because we first heard about them when I was still in, working in Toronto. They started in Canada, but now Nerds on Site is all over the world. Uh, Nerds on Site is a group, a kind of a, an association for IT professionals. Uh, you'll find them in Canada, yes, the U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, and India. And I bet you, you know, another country or two since I since I got, <laughs> last checked. I mean, they're everywhere. I Go to IWantToBeANerd.com. There's a video of them uh, talking to Steve Gibson. They had a great little coffee for him a few years ago. They're, the Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for more nerds, people with skills and competencies in every area of computing, from PC to Mac to Cisco to Oracle to Astaro. Uh, you name it, they need it. Fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, even uh, less technical areas like sales, trainers, of course, security experts and antivirus gurus. They especially like nerds who are solution focused on today's small and medium enterprise that's really the sweet spot that's still the last bastion of uh, uh, that's the big growing market sector still now don't worry you're not going to give up your independence a nerd is an independent contractor you're still in business for yourself but not by yourself and that's what's exciting about this you focus on your passion but not the burdens of running a business if there were nerds on site for podcasters i would be a member 
Believe me, this is great. You can tune up your competencies. They've got a University of Nerdology with 250 competencies, including Astaro, uh, including Cisco, Soho, Residential IT Services, Architecture Design, System Architecture Design. I mean, everything. Look, look, just go to IWantToBeANerd.com. Find out more about it, and you can register for a nerds-only meeting. I think they use GoToMeeting for that in your uh, in your area, or you can. I don't. I think they use GoToMeeting. Go to IWantToBeANerd.com to find out more. Great people, and if you're in that business, that IT business, uh, this is a really great way to grow your business and maintain your independence. It's a great combination. IWantToBeANerd.com. Steve, I've got uh, questions. Twelve of them sitting in front of me. Are you ready? Do you feel ready to answer? Do you want to take a break? Do you want to go yabba dabba do or anything like that? Someone posted that they want a copy of the yabba dabba do wave file. I will, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put it somewhere on GRC. I think and, you can, you can find that online link. too. I mean, that's, it, I, I did. It was yeah. just really just a, just a enthusiastic. There's another one. Just an enthusiastic, happy Fred Flintstone. And it just, you know, makes me smile. So I think it just, if I had a little light behind me that lit up every time, uh, or, or maybe, a, maybe we could have a little, uh, angel fly across the screen <laughs> every time somebody donated i think that's a great idea i like oh, it here's another one coming you're kidding no wow um i had there's a as they as they're filling out the form i'm there's a a cash register sound ka-ching ching ka-ching ching and then the yabba dabba on on successful completion <laughs> so i just love it that you do that i think that's great. you have a bunch of other sounds too i know Oh, and actually, I've I've got some really nice um, um, synthetic voice sounds that monitor uh, my network here. And it's like uh, I've got one that's like your primary uh, uh, primary internet link has gone down. Oh, geez. And your primary internet internet link has come up. <laughs> and then I also have a, I wrote some tools that monitor workstations that are like doing uh, like AV compression, and it'll say. Um, uh, AV workstation is now idle because, you know, I'm, I'm working and I want, I want to know when another machine is done so I can go over and, Oh, that's you know. good. We need to do all of that stuff. Yeah. It's really cool. That's really good. And you wrote those scripts in. In assembler. In assembler, of course. Uh, of course. <laughs> what else? <laughs> Question one, Alicia Ketchy, who is otherwise anonymous. Okay. Is very upset that Microsoft uninstalled her new antivirus program. Steve and Leo, she writes, I turned on my computer a few days ago and I got a message saying that Microsoft MSRT had removed AV2009 from my computer. So now I don't have an antivirus installed. I tried to download another copy of AV2009, but I couldn't remember where I got it. Can you tell me? This is not, this is a joke. No, I'm this not is a kidding joke. you. I am not kidding you. This is a joke. No. Can you tell me where to find it or recommend a free AV program? Uh, oh, boy. Isn't that perfect? I can't believe it. I mean, maybe she's pulling our leg. Uh, if, so, if so, I take my, I tip my cat, my hat cap to her. <laughs> it's pretty whatever funny. Whatever I'm tipping something. I'm tipsy. Um, I just thought this was fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Of course, AV 2009 is a virus. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. And a lot of people have been getting it, and MSRT has been removing it from a lot of machines. Um, so in case that Alicia is serious, we're not laughing at you. We're laughing with you. Um, yes, because but, you're not alone. There are many, many, many people who've fallen for this. I get, literally, I get this call on the radio show all the time. Yes. Yes. So do not go 
looking for another copy of it. Actually, it'll probably find you without you having to look for it um, and happily crawl into your computer. Um, it is malicious. You're, it's good that Microsoft MSRT removed it. Um, and Leo, you, you're probably more on top of what's the the best free AV program to recommend. So I, I defer to you. I'll tell you a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, the guys, uh, the clever fellows at AV2009 are now calling it uh, AV, some in some cases, uh, AV360 or 360 protection. Because what they're doing is they're trying to trick you into thinking it's Norton. Because Norton, Norton Antivirus 2009, uh, Norton 360. So you may see other names for this. The way you get it is you will go to what you think is a normal website. And all of a sudden, you'll see a pop-up on your screen that says, wait a minute, you have some some spyware or viruses on your system. We'd like to check. Click OK. By the way, if you click OK or cancel, no matter what you click, the <laughs> same thing happens. You get set to a site where it says it shows you a phony, a phony clicker going whoa, whoa whoa and i know it's phony because i've seen it on my iphone and i've seen it on my mac neither of which get any of these viruses and so it goes click 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 and it says yeah 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 you're infected but we've got a we've got the free solution for you click this download it you download an executable <sighs> and install it and that's of course av 2009 or av 360 and it is a, you know it is a virus so there's a good program to get rid of this uh, malwarebytes.org they've been doing a good job keeping up with the latest iterations of this malwarebytes.org uh, a lot of people have had good success removing it with this tool uh, msrt will also remove it and for an antivirus you know i personally don't think it's i think it's a foolish economy to get a free antivirus when a a better one is 30 bucks a year, but there are good free ones. AVG is a good one. Antivir uh, is from freeav.com. Um, and uh, there's a vast, those are the three biggest names. Um, but frankly, I, I, I would spend 30 bucks and get a, and get a better one that's faster and uh, and more accurate. And it's going to be supported by its company and, right. and receiving uh, viral signature updates the in a timely fashion. The reason AVG gives it away is because they want you to upgrade to their paid version. Right. So their free version, uh, mostly it's just slow. It doesn't scan quite as fast. Uh, it uses more system resources. I like Nod32. That's what I use. But um, there's a lot of good choices out there. Um, and I certainly think that, you know, spending 30 bucks a year is not too much to spend for an antivirus. Uh, moving along, question number two. This is from Jan or Jan Hertzens. Another Yubico question. He wonders whether Yubico might be missing the obvious. We're talking about the YubiKey security dongle. In your last podcast, you mentioned the need to trust the verifier of the key to be able to authenticate a key. So why not have the key use public key asymmetric encryption? You supply the user with his public key via download or whatever. Keep the private key on the device. This way, any entity can independently verify a token but can't fake it. Trust no one? That seems like a good idea. Would that work? Well, let's talk about it. I, I, I uh, it's I. First of all, we, uh, there's so many, so much feedback about Yubico and YubiKeys in th- that we receive. That you know, I mean, I I know we talk about it a lot, but it's just it's captured our listeners' imagination. So uh, I thought this was an interesting notion. There are a couple a couple problems with the idea, and so let's let's work through how such a thing would work. If the YubiKey or some future variant of it, or a, you know, a hypothetical dongle like that, um, 
were to use asymmetric encryption, then the idea would be that that one side of the asymmetry of the key, that is, in this case, we would call it the private key because it would be kept private, although I keep reminding users that they are interchangeable. One undoes what the other does, essentially. So, so in this dongle would be the private asymmetric key, and no force on Earth could cause it to disclose the key. So the whole idea would be you need to prove that you're, you own the thing that contains this private key. So that, that means that it would have to accept something that was encrypted with your public key that anyone could have access to and, and then decrypt it using the other key, the private key, and then demonstrate that it had done so by returning that decrypted thing. So, for example, you go to a website that has access somehow to your public key. Like when you, you originally authenticated yourself with the, with the website, you'd said, hi, you know, I'm, I'm Steve Gibson. Here is my public Yubico. Well, we need a different name, though, because I don't want to confuse people. It's not a Yubico. This be would some be some other Yubico-like dongle. Yes. Here's, here's the public key associated with my account and with my authentication device. And that's the key, so to speak. Um, and this is who I am. So, you know, please authenticate me against this public key. So you would go through whatever it is you do to authenticate yourself the first time, giving the site that, you know, your public side of your authentication device. So then every time you logged in, the site would, for example, just generate what we call a nonce, an N-O-N-C-E, a, 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 a basically a pseudo-random blob, which it only ever uses once. It would encrypt that with your public key that it and anybody could do. But the only way to decrypt it is with your private key. So you would then provide that, that encrypted nonce to your authentication device and it would it would decrypt it using the private key that it will it will never divulge it will only do the work that that key allows it to do and then it would return the decrypted nonce to the site confirming to the site that you know whatever it is you've got the matching mm private key mm-hmm. that matches the public key. It's like so, signing. It, it verifies your identity. Yes, and this concept works. Here's two problems. First is, it means that you need data going into this device. That is, that encrypted blob has to go into the device, which means that it can no longer just be a keyboard. And one of the elegant things about Yubico's solution with the YubiKey is it's just a keyboard. When you when you when you hold your finger over the little contact, it you know spits out the right. next little blurch of of stuff. It's not that so, smart, in other words. It's just a little. Well, and thing. that's part two. Is it is really not smart. It it's yeah. very inexpensive because it doesn't take much to do that. Right. Suddenly now we're asking it to do public key encryption, which is very processor intensive, 
Um, and so it would radically change the form factor, you know, the, the cost structure and the essentially the technology that you would need to have in there, which is not to say that it can't be done. You know, there's crypto chips all over the place. So, you know, it could certainly be done. Somehow you would have to get the data into the key. The only way I could think of doing that when I was brainstorming is there is communication for the the lights on the on a USB keyboard, you know, the the scroll lock, caps lock, and num lock. And so it is possible for the computer to get data into a keyboard by using those. And and I've not looked at the protocol closely. There may be, you know, even a wider channel than just three lights worth. But certainly you could serialize the keys binary bits um, in order to send that into the key, in order to get the data in, it would then process it and then spit out the matching crypto. So it's certainly possible to do, I, I think you could solve these problems. I don't know if it could be as inexpensive as the YubiKey, and maybe there in the future there will be something like this. Uh, as far as I know, it doesn't exist now, but I, I completely agree. This is cool because it, it does solve the problem of a third party. You give anyone who you want to be able to authenticate you your public key, and nobody who doesn't have your private key can do so. Yeah, I so love it's, it. You know, it's, of it's risky because you're carrying your private key around on a device. It's actually no riskier than, than the YubiKey. The YubiKey has a secret key also. That's true. It, it, just, it, it just encrypts a counter in order to spit it out. Well, and here's so, one other thing. The way typically your public key, private key works, isn't there a passphrase or some other way of matching yourself to the private key uh i guess not well, for you signing certainly, you could certainly oh, add yeah, for signing there is yeah you you could certainly add authentication and you could also even do it i wonder if you could do it at your end where where you have to type in your passphrase that stays local so you're authorizing the key to do the decryption and that way you you've, you've we've now made it multi-factor too i think really yeah. the issue is is totally cost yeah, I mean, you're, 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 but you're, now you're putting a processor in here. Yeah, it's, well, uh, yeah, yeah. And, it's, but I mean, you know, hey, prices are falling. Someday somebody's going to do this. It's just, it's, you know, how do you get it down to the nickel? It certainly device? makes sense. And it's, it's a cool thing to imagine that you've got your private key locked up in this little thing on your key ring. Right. And you can, you know, now you no longer need a third party. See, the point of the third party is they know your secret key. Right. And, but if you use public key crypto, you don't need that third party. You just need more power at your end. Although ultimately, at least PGP works with a chain of trust. So you, you always have a third party who's va- validating that you are you. Otherwise, you can make up a key. I'm Steve Gibson. See, I got the key that says it. Um, Somebody well, has no. to verify that that really is Steve Gibson's key. Well, remember that I said we originally need to go through, through some sort of authentication. Yeah, there's always trust somewhere. When I'm when I'm giving them my private when I'm giving them my public key, that is the mat, the matching public key, and so you 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 could imagine that this thing, you if you like hold the button down for a long time, it spits out the public key that it's willing to give to anyone anytime, but it uh, and that way you know it, it's like it's it's got them both, but it will never release the private key. You will only use the private key to perform a decryption operation. Um, on your behalf right anyway it could absolutely work it just you know it would require more 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 processing power in the key right. you you really don't want to like 
let the key out even into the CPU. You could say, well, I plugged my key into a PC. Modern PCs can do that in a, in a blink of an eye. Yes, but then as soon as you let the private key out of the key out out, out of the you know hyper strength YubiKey um, future YubiKey thing, then it's 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 subject to compromise. So you never want to let it out. It, it, you only feed something in f- for it to do the work on. Um, you know, I mean, it would that's certainly an upgrade to the concept. You know, I, I, thinking on, I have a question. <laughs> thinking on this note, yeah, because um, I use PGP uh, to create a public-private key pair that right. I use to sign all my mail, so that people know it's my mail. Now, of course. Anybody could do that, make a key that says it's, you know, Leo Laporte. But Actually, all they know is that it came from your machine, right? Somebody uh, else could use your machine no, and be signing no, mail you could create you. Because of the nature of PGP, anybody can create a key with any address. But what you do is you, uh, you ask people to sign it. So people who know it's you would then sign the key. And so the trust goes up. It's called a chain of trust. And it's, it, is, it is kind of a flaw in the PGP system, unlike a certification system. If you get a certificate, you prove to Thought or VeriSign that you are you and at least prove that, that you have that email address because they send the cert, cert, cert to that email address. Not with PGP. You're generating the key locally. So there's no central authority. But at the same way, same time, there's no central authentication either. Um, but what you do is you ask people to sign it. In fact, they, they have key signing parties where you'll go and you'll, the 100, 100 geeks will bring their PGP key and I'll look at your driver's license, say, yeah, that's you, and I'll sign your key. And then it says, well, Leo Laporte says it's him and Steve Gibson says it's him. Oh, I guess it must be him. It's not tied to the machine. I carry my PG, key, PGP private key with me. The problem is we're mixing up certificates with... Exactly. With- this is a different system. Right, right, right. And, and, and so this is a certificate-free system right. where we're simply using the, the, the it's like math. You know what it's like? It's a self-signed certificate. Well, no, it's not a certificate at all. It's just crypto. It's raw yeah, it is. crypto. But, but I'm it's, saying in terms of trust, it's like a self. You can make a, a, a certificate for yourself. Absolutely. Self-signed. Absolutely. But, but no, third, no third party has verified it in any way. Right. That's right. what these are like. In ter- so the idea is you're you 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 the, if this if this next generation key if you you bought one it would have two modes of operation. You hold the button down for a long time so that you don't do it inadvertently, and out comes your public key, which so it's able to dispense your public key whenever you need it. You can write it down. You store it in a text file. You could use it to enter it into a website. Doesn't right. matter because I mean that's freely that's offered. Public. Yeah, it's it's public. Then if you normally touch it, it will it will wait for a something to come in. And when that whatever that is, that that is an encrypted something, it will apply your private key to decrypt it and then type it back out. I mean, and that if, if, if that system existed, it would be a tremendous authentication tool. Right. And what it proves is. It proves you're in physical possession of that object, which contains that private key. Precisely, my friend. Yeah. Darren Chu in Redwood City, California, wonders whether a VPN is really necessary. Do I really need a VPN, he says. I'm using an open Wi-Fi in a hotel. <laughs> is a VPN necessary? 
if I'm transmitting information I don't want anybody to see, shouldn't that be on an SSL connection anyway? You know, a bank, Amazon, whatever. Any sensitive information should never be transmitted over a non-SSL site, whether it's through a VPN connection or not. I really don't see the need to spend money for a VPN connection. I don't care if people in the hotel know I'm on ESPN.com to see if the Cal men's basketball team beats Stanford. I don't care if people are reading my, I'm sorry, I care if people are reading my email, but Gmail is through an SSL connection, so they can't see my email anyway, with or without a VPN. If I'm checking my balance on a bank site, SSL, people can't see the traffic. I understand I need a VPN if I connect to a work network, but that's different than surfing on the web. In terms of protecting someone from hacking into my computer, a firewall protects me, but not a VPN connection. Am I correct? Um, absolutely. <laughs> the, 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 the rub is not everything is SSL. Uh, well, and even as we know, Gmail is not SSL unless you explicitly start your session with HTTPS in Gmail. Many people just do gmail.com, which defaults to non non-SSL, you're taken briefly into a secure session for your login, and then you revert to non-secure. So all of your Gmail is passing in the clear. The, the, it is certainly the case that if someone is really vigilant with, um, with you know what they're doing and whether they're secure or not from moment to moment, I agree with, with Darren that a, a VPN in a why in an open Wi-Fi scenario is not necessary for you know typical use of the web. If he doesn't care what you know what he's doing, but if he you know most email is just is just standard um, IMAP or or POP or SMTP, which is not over an encrypted connection. So email is you know classic for for just being you know totally readable and arguably somewhat private you know especially login credentials that are that is that are often easily captured username and password for for login so so again if you're if you're really careful then i agree something like hotspot vpn we were talking about and this is probably what would trigger darren's question where you you wanted to be protected in uh, in in a in an open environment um, you know, you decide if you want it or not. Remember that two weeks ago we had the question from someone who was who was for some reason or, or for a limited length of time being um, being forced to work in an in an employer's office that had open Wi-Fi, and he didn't want to you know stir things up and 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 cause a lot of ruffled feathers. So he was asking us, "How can I protect myself? I'm a Security Now listener. I understand." The importance, uh, the, you know, the danger of open Wi-Fi. Um, I want to protect myself, so it's like you know, there something like Hotspot VPN, which is very economical and available on you know one or two day contracts, um, made or, or a week, made a lot of sense for him. You know, if Darren is feeling VPN hostile, then fine. I mean, I completely agree with him. You're you have to be vigilant though, moment to moment, action to action, because you know, and, and aware that unless you're over a secure connection, anyone can see what you're doing. You can, in uh, in the Gmail settings now, turn on uh, always use uh, HTTPS in the browser. Good. And, I thought I remembered that yeah, they'd made some change. Yeah, and that's, that's highly recommended. I think the real problem is uh, a lot of Internet service providers' email is in the clear. The password's sent in the clear. And so that's, the, that's kind of the nightmare scenario where you check your email... 
you know, and then you leave, but the password's been set in the clear. Now the guy's got access to your email until you change your email password. And how often do you do that? Right. And once somebody has access to your email, I mean, there are all sorts of threats. So I, right. yeah, if you're right, yeah, if you're, if you're vigilant, but that's, that's always the case. If you're vigilant, you don't have to worry. Uh, Larry Strope of Streamwood, Illinois is describing his love hate relationship with no script. Uh, dear Stephen Lee, I've been with you guys since the beginning. I've enjoyed all the various topics you've covered over the years. Some topics have done flybys on my senior size shrinking brain. Most of them have stuck in some fashion or another. All good stuff, mind you. And I've been a Spinrite user since version 2 or 3. Wow, can't exactly recall which. I still have an Apple II Plus. Will Spinrite work on that? Just kidding, just kidding. But not kidding about having an Apple II Plus. Uh, that goes back to the time before consumer hard drives, a.k.a. the Chronicles of Apple. My topic is no script. <clears throat> this is almost a Shakespearean sonnet here. <laughs> and my love-hate relationship with it. I love the added protection it offers against script baddies, but I hate the added time spent in trying to decide which of the listed blockages I need to clear that will allow me to, say, push a button required to continue or accept or submit among the list of allows that extends from the bottom to the top of the screen. When I look at the list, I have no idea at all which item is controlling the button I'm trying to use, and frequently I find that certain links contained on a page won't work at all without making additional allowances. I usually end up in frustration saying to hell with it and allowing the entire page. That's what I always do. But doesn't that kind of defeat the no script purpose of no script? Now, one would think that a modicum of common sense would prevail in these situations. After all, if I've chosen to sign up for a newsletter or register or make a purchase from a site, I believe a keyword here to be trustworthy, then one would think allowing the entire page to be safe. The offset is, however, that all overall trustworthiness of websites has diminished considerably over the years and a sense of wariness is usually present in the subconscious clicking with your fingers crossed behind your back this is particularly true when you see things like double click and google analytics showing up in the list i suppose this has been more of a rant than a question but i need more caution do i need more caution less caution a therapist thanks for a great series what a great letter yeah i really so like this is the- what i had this is the same problem i have but i always just say oh allow the site yeah um for me, okay, again, the the recurring theme we have here is know the risks and know your options. And so I have no problem with Larry saying, allow the whole page. I, you know, no script is one tool that I haven't let, I haven't abandoned after I turned off the, you know, the pop-up notices, which, you know, really are annoying I think the, the the default for that should be the other way around, um, but I understand why a, a new NoScript user you know might want to have those. For me, every time I I run across a site that's got a problem, it's like oh okay fine, and I just go down and I allow it. I, I'm you know I'm not running a personal firewall that that manages all of my outbound traffic. Um, I'm not running an antivirus. Um, I'm, uh, there are many different security solutions that, that get in my way more than I'm willing to tolerate, but no script is not one of them. I just, I'm so cognizant of the tremendously ease, the, the, the tremendous ease of stumbling onto a site that hurts me without any ability to control it. I mean, I, I can control not clicking on links in email. 
I can, you know, I can control having or have having a sense of responsibility for what software I've got installed on my machine and and what's going, you know, how it's phoning home and what it's doing. But I can't control ahead of time what a page that I'm about to receive when I click on a link is going to do to me. So, so there's a real threshold in my thinking about scripting, and you know, we all know that I've been, you know, anti-scripting for a long time. Um, Clearly, the net needs scripting more and more, and I don't, I, I can't argue against the functionality the scripting provides. It's, it's so useful. Unfortunately, with that usefulness comes exploitability. So, um, for me, you know, I, I guess I would say, think of NoScript as a tool, a useful tool that you can you can use any way you want it. But it's better to have it than not at all. I just, you know, who knows what kind of junk. I mean, remember the the first Q and A um, was w- with I think Alicia who got AV two thousand nine installed on her machine. Well, the way that original pop up happened was scripting. The site she went to used scripting to to produce a a, a pop up which had malicious intent, which then induced her. As you said, it doesn't matter whether she clicks yes or no, because a script is behind that that took her to the website that performed a fake AV test. All of that is the fault of scripting. If scripting was disabled, she would have never had that trouble and would not have had that malware installed on her machine. So, you know, I'm I'm really bullish on NoScript. I just think it's uh, it's the right tool. Again, I'm not telling everyone to run with it all the way up and 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 fight with a site if you you know it's up to you but having that choice is what NoScript gives you. Actually, I don't know if NoScript would have protected you against AV two thousand nine. The way it works is um, at least in one in the instance I'm aware of is that, that somebody's website is hike, ha- uh, hacked. Their .ht access file is modified to check the refer. If the refer comes from Google or Yahoo, it replaces the page that you would, and this is all happening server side, replaces the page that you would get with another page that says you've been hacked. So it, and that could also, it's not a, it's not a pop-up window. It looks like a pop-up window. It's just a sized HTML page. That requires scripting. You can't just size a page, huh? No. Okay. Yeah, because it does. Yeah, it, I guess in order to trick you, it it needs to look like a dialog box, an OS dialog. Yeah, so right. that w- that's done by scripting. Okay, yeah, right. you're right. Of course, anybody who falls for that probably isn't running no script. But <laughs> um, do you? So when you get to a site, uh, do you say trust all, or do you say one by one? Okay, you can allow um, that script. Allow that script. Um, I've certainly seen sites where where the where the where the where the page has resources coming from all over hell and gone. I mean, it's just you know you you. There's George. You um. <laughs> you you click the little blocked S for for script, and up pops a a menu of just it lists all of these different domains that the site that the page is trying to pull from. Well, first of all, there's a good clue that this is a sophisticated page i, I mean i i would i would look askance at a page that, that was doing that most sites don't give you a huge list of domains but i normally just allow the main page and for me 99.9 percent of the time it works yeah 
Yeah. Or you could just say allow everything. I, I, but I, again, no, I'm not saying allow everything, but allow, I'm saying allow this site. Yes. I mean, yes. Allow this, allow everything on this page. Right. And, right. and again, even doing that, even, even that gives you a, a, a chance. It, it says, wait a minute. You know, you, you've seen most of the page. Something's not working. I mean, my point is you've arrived and you can evaluate if you, if you had scripting enabled by default blanket scripting, you don't have a chance to evaluate. You don't have any opportunity to make a decision about whether you want to go further or not. I mean, and when you click a link, you're blind. You don't know where you're going right. until you get there. Oh, what a world. What a world. Yeah. Well, it's, it's you know, it's why we have a podcast. Alistair Kidd in Lobbit, whoever that is, suggests that Steve's AxeCrypt encryption advice requires a knuckle wrap. Dear Steve, from the last SNQ&A, when talking about email encryption, you mentioned AxeCrypt. And he quotes you. He says, so I would say, you say, so I would say for somebody who just wants to occasionally send something encrypted, you just encrypt the file and email it and a little Axe Decrypt program to a friend or tell your friend to download Axe Decrypt, which is also free. But saying you could send a binary attachment expecting the recipient to run it? Doesn't that contradict all sensible advice about email attachments? I guess it does. If I got an email saying that I had to run an attachment to decrypt it, I would go, it would go straight to the bit bucket. Same with an email containing a link asking me to download an executable. Yours in flippancy, Alistair. P.S. Any thoughts about Microsoft's fix-it button idea? Ill-considered? Rank rotten? P.P.S. Love the show to bits. That is a good point. Yeah, and I don't I don't disagree with it at all. My assumption is that if you're if you're sending someone an encrypted file, um, you know them. You it's it's you know it's your attorney. It's somebody you have some sort of of a relationship with that requires encryption, and that that's a little bit off of the normal beaten path. So. So I would have no problem if someone said, hey, I encrypted this with this program. Um, you know, go get it, especially if they were a trusted friend. Go get it from the site or put in, you know, put Axe Decrypt, Google it into, um, you know, the, the you know, run, run a Google query, find it yourself. I mean, you know, whatever. Or, you know, you've, you've arranged to have the program before and it's what you guys use when you're sharing things back and forth. So I'm, I mean, I guess I understand his position, but um, it seems to me that it's, it's, the idea is it's, it's someone you have a relationship with rather than spam being sent out saying, hey, here's an attachment, go here to decrypt it. And, you know, and the spam's coming from someone you, you don't trust and, and have no knowledge of. Right, right. Um, by the way, there was some dialogue after this in GRC's Security Now news group um, indicating that there are flavors of zip which use AES oh. encryption, um, which, you know, I was unaware of, and apparently not all flavors of, but some. But that's an interesting notion, too. So here's, you know, a mainstream zip program. Um, and I don't know if it's the zip built into Windows. Um, I will try to do some research about this because it would be terrific, for example, if if there was a platform-neutral zip format where encrypting the zip actually did encryption rather than putting the weak password protection on zips that they used to. Yeah, it used to be it, really it crackable. Be yeah, Very easy to crack it, yes. Yeah, I use PGP. Uh, I actually use GNU Privacy Guard, which is uh, an open-source PGP. 
um, and I sign all my messages with it, which, which, and I put, I publish my public key. So if somebody wants to encrypt mail to me, they have my key and they just use it and they encrypt it and they send it to me. Yep. I wish more people did that, but it's just too geeky. Nobody does it. Jonathan in Roseville, California resists the YubiKey for static password notion. See, if you've been talking about the YubiKey from Yubico for a while now, I really like the idea. I use an RSA key for one of the sites I use, but the YubiKey would be much more convenient, except that I usually get the RSA key over the phone. However, you've mentioned using it in static password mode as well. I listened to your episode going into detail about the YubiKey, and I didn't hear anything that makes this sound any more secure than writing down a small, a strong password and entering it on the keyboard accurately every time. You would be vulnerable to keyloggers still, and this time it would matter because it is not a one-time password. Would this be more secure than just storing the key in a text file on a thumb drive? For my wireless router, I use one of your 64 hex character perfect passwords as an AES encryption key. Then store that string in a text file because you're not going to type it. Uh, on a removable drive, I copy and paste it into the appropriate field when setting up a new wireless client. Is there something I'm not thinking of? I could even encrypt that file. That would add security. But I use this drive every day for school, and I don't worry about using it. I'd love to know what you think about this. Thanks for the netcast. Exactly what I love to listen to. In-depth technical discussions of IT issues. Okay. Once again, um, I've... uh... I bring this up because there's so much traffic in our feedback about the YubiKey. And, and I've thought about why there's the, the amount of you know, people questioning this notion of static password. And I, and I think that I should have said something when we first discussed this that I never said because I sort of took it for granted more than I should have. And so I want to make it very clear, sort of once and for all, that when you change the YubiKey from its one-time password mode to static, you've completely changed everything. I mean, the, the everything that was special and originally really cool about the one-time password mode of the YubiKey is changed. It's gone. Now what you have is something completely different. I mean, it's, you can literally, and I, I wanted to be really clear about this, think of it as two entirely separate devices. You know, they live in one piece of plastic, and it's one or the other at a time, but it's, I mean, they really are completely separate. So, you know, we've had a lot of, lot of um, listeners questioning the security of the static password, well, I'm glad they're questioning it because they've been listening to the show. It means they they understood how what the you know the the nature of the coolness of the of the whole concept of a one time password. He mentioned his his RSA fob. Um, you know, I've got the little e ink credit card in my wallet, which I'm able to use interchangeably with my football if I'm away from home. You know, I mean, all of these one time password schemes are are uniquely secure because they don't use the same thing twice. So they're, they're fundamentally different from anything which is static. And so I completely agree with Jonathan's comment that, that the YubiKey in static mode is, is nowhere near as secure as the YubiKey in one time password mode. But, but 
it's not intending to be. It's not saying it is. It, you know, it's a very different model. And when, when, once again, we need to kind of come back to the, the security model and just understand what that is. So now with this static password mode, we're generating 64 characters from a 16-character alphabet, which has, a, the, has the entropy, the randomness of 256 bits when the YubiKey is configured in static password mode with a maximally length um, with a maximum length output. So, you know, what it is is useful for what it is. It's 64 characters, the same 64 every time. You can use it as your WPA key. You can use it as a, you know, as, as a password on a website. Every time you use it, you, you need to understand that it's not one-time password. It's the same password every time, but it's what, what you're getting is you're getting its extreme length and the difficulty of memorizing it um, you know, as its benefit and the ease of entering that monster-long 64-character thing every single time, the, the ease of entering it just by touching your finger on the button. So you know, there are scenarios where you could argue that the – the risk is uh, is very low. For example, in um, uh, pre-boot authentication with TrueCrypt, where there's no OS running, there's no internet connectivity. There's you know you're you're like pre all of those problems that you typically have, and you can add your own um, password after that in order to create a second factor. The YubiKey being one with its monster long thing, and then you know something you add to it. So, so again, very much like NoScript, where yes, it's you know NoScript has some problems, but you know it gives you some leverage. I think the YubiKey in static password mode, uh, it, you know, let's not think of it as the end all be all solution. Let's think of it as okay, that's useful for a certain domain of solutions different from what the YubiKey in its one-time password mode offers. Okay. That makes perfect sense to me, as long okay, as you understand rant, the distinction, my, right? My, my rant is over now. <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. They really, they really are separate solution yes. domains. It's important and, to understand. You know, yeah. that, that, and this one little bit of plastic is able to function either way, which is, I think, very cool. But and he's I right that you could applications for each. He's right that you could, you know, store it on a USB. Yep. You could do all sorts of things with it. At, well, in fact, until until I did this, switched my one of my YubiKeys to static mode and set up my it's and used it as my WPA password, which I have. When someone came over, I had to I use my own perfect passwords just like he does, and I had that on a file in a thumb drive. And so when someone came over and wanted to get online with their laptop. I, you know, I'd give them the thumb drive. They would, you know, get the file, open the file, copy and paste it into the password box twice, and then they were online. Now it's cooler. Yeah, I've got you just this, give them that, and they go boom. Exactly. They go like, "What the heck is that?" It's like, ah, well, you're over here in the in the house of magic and mystery. So, you know, <laughs> what do you expect? It's you know, magic. Yabba dabba do going off all the time. It's you know, it's loony over here. <laughs> and so, you know, I stick this little sliver of black plastic in and and touch it, and it goes zoop, and then do it a, a second time, and bang, you know, they're now online. It's very cool. So, yes, understanding where and how it makes sense to use it reduces this to a tool is it you know neither of them are perfect 
because, for example, we saw that the YubiKey one-time password mode being symmetric requires a third party to authenticate. Okay, so, you know, that's useful for a certain domain of problems. And the static system doesn't require a, th- a, a third party, doesn't have public key encryption, but, you know, what it does is it offers you a very complex string, which is, say, you could argue, is safe to use in an environment where keystroke logging is not, you know, a real threat. Right. Mike Silvers in Salisbury, Maryland, wonders why is uh, his NAT router isn't protecting him? Steve, I'm an avid listener and a computer consultant on the East Shore of Maryland. I have a question about the visibility of internal LAN IP addresses through a NAT router. (laughs) I visited the site ip-lookup.net. When you reach the page, it gives you information about your WAN IP address and ownership of that address. What concerns me is the little link under the WAN IP address. When you click on the link, it shows the internal LAN address of my Apple Mac. I thought the NAT router would shield the outside world from determining my internal IP uh, structure. How do they bust through the NAT? Should I be concerned about this? This is an old trick. And I have one one word, Leo. Yeah, I know what word it's going to be, too. Uh It's the S word. (laughs) Yep. 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 Scripting. In other words, your computer knows its IP address, so it just writes a script that says... Publish the IP address. Yep. It's funny. When I when I was reading this, I thought, oh, I think I, I mean, I, I knew what the answer was just as you did. I went to IPLookup.net under Firefox and it completely failed. Um, it showed me my WAN IP. It did not show me my LAN IP. In fact, the, 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 the link for that didn't work at all. It was completely non-functional. So then I said, okay, gee, um, I've got to enable scripting. So I deliberately enabled scripting. Even then it didn't work. Um, you know, and it turns out it's because it uses actual Java and I've deliberately not installed Java um, for Firefox's use because, you know, I just don't think I need it. And, and I don't. However, I opened up IE and gave it a try under IE and it worked perfectly. Right. So it's like, uh, yes, thank you anyway. <laughs> It's scripting. This was an, an old trick sites used to use to say your privacy is has been compromised, and well, they would do all this uh, JavaScript stuff. And, and, and e- e- even worse, um, what many sites did was they uh, on on IE was they would show you the contents of your hard drive. Right, right. I remember. That. Oh my yeah. God! I can't tell you how many times. I mean, how much email Greg has answered where they, you know, they use yeah. shields up and we'd say you're secure. Then they'd say, hey, I went to this site and it showed me yeah. the contents of my C drive. It's like, <clears throat> yes, because your browser was told to, to show the contents of your drive. The site, you know, just gave it, you know, gave your browser a link that said, you know, m- you know, show C colon backslash. Right. And the browser does. So you know, just, just again, to make this clear, there, there, there's stuff that happens on the server side and there's stuff that happens on your browser and what's called client side and your browser knows all that stuff so your browser can be told to display that information it doesn't mean it's sending it back to those guys either right i guess it correct. could correct um it um good question i it, it certainly could um i don't know in this case if if the java sent it or javascript because e- e- either can do it send it to their server and then they displayed it or whether it just displayed it locally oh, I'm sure all just it displayed it locally just, but yeah. my, my question is yeah because that's all it needs to do but my question is could it be used to could you query i mean i, I we have to ask a 
a, a JavaScript wizard, I guess. I'm sure there are. The theory is that it's sandboxed and it's prevented from doing stuff like that, but there might be ways around that. Yeah, I would be surprised if you couldn't incorporate the local IP, for example, into a URL query. Exactly. And so, and so send, like ha- have yeah. your browser request a resource that had the IP embedded in right. it, and the server could then capture that request and decode the IP from it. You'd make a good hacker, Steve. Well, I've got a lot of that te- technology <laughs> over at GRC for, like, you know, tracking users who don't have cookies enabled, right. Right. where I'm wanting to offer them services and not, and, you know, like, keep track of who they are. Yeah. I use that in my in, in the cookie forensics stuff that is, uh, you know, soon to be made public in order to allow people to have everything blocked. Yet I still maintain a relationship with them. Jack Scharf has a good question from uh, Longmont, Colorado. How is he supposed to know that auto updates aren't Trojans? He says on Microsoft, whether it's Windows or Defender, uh, Apple uh, with iTunes or Safari, Adobe with Acrobat and Intuit and, uh, and any other software vendor alerts me to install automatic updates. How do I know it's really that company? Maybe it's just a pop-up saying, you need a new update, and it's a Trojan horse. With all the hacking and spoofing going on, this seems like an avenue into unsuspecting computers, which is far overripe. What are vendors doing to prevent this? What can users do? Well, it's a great question. Um, really, the the security answer is, if you're running programs on your computer... You have implicitly trusted them. Right. That is, you know, you've, you've installed software from Microsoft, Windows and Defender, or Apple, iTunes, Adobe Acrobat, you know, in, in TurboTax from Intuit. The point is um, you, you're assuming that they're going to behave themselves honorably. Um, and in running them, essentially, they have the full run of the computer. You know, it's it's from that standpoint, it's sort of a little surprising. We're not having more problems than, than we are with, with with programs misbehaving. Of course, you know, if Apple iTunes did something bad, thanks to the communication network we now have with the Internet, you know, the world would know about it very quickly. So, you know, vendors are doing the best job they can not to cause problems for their users because they recognize it directly affects their bottom line. Oh, but I think he's saying, what if somebody posed as iTunes and said, I'm iTunes, I'd like to update. Well, then you've got something in your computer which is working against your interests, you know, and, and so that can, that can only happen because you've got somebody running on your system already. Yeah. Now, yeah. now the interesting threat is what if somebody... For example, used a DNS spoof so that when iTunes tried to get an update from Apple, it actually got an update from a malicious site. So there they're intercepting a valid software update and um, and and essentially commandeering it in order to get malware installed in your machine. And we know, for example, that Microsoft understood that problem and so they've gone to some measures to cryptographically um, sign and protect you know the, the, the all the windows downloading stuff that is going on and we hope that apple and adobe and intuit and the others are doing the same although there's no guarantee that any random company that wants to do automatic updates you know is taking you know every kind of security measure that they can okay and I guess in a way, that's what the antivirus 2009 thing was, which is, uh, you know, essentially trying to pose as a dialogue box from a legitimate company to trick you into downloading something else. You, 
using a little bit of scripting followed yep. by a lot of social engineering. I mean, yep. that was largely a social engineering right. hack, right. you know, convincing people that, oh, look, you, you know, you, you're infected. Click this to get disinfected. You'd, you'd, you know, you'd know if it were. Of, I mean, it'd be hard to, to spoof one of those Microsoft or Apple windows, right? I would think. Maybe not. Well, <laughs> I guess if, if, if it's a Windows know, window, anybody can drive yeah, it. Code, yeah, code running on, on your machine can look like anything it wants to, essentially. Right. But by that time, you've got code running on your machine. Right. I guess the danger is... I'm worried about scripting. Yes, in, intercepting valid software's automatic update ah, maneuvers. I see. And like, you know, getting your own stuff in instead. Right. And, and you could imagine uh, if they weren't... if if software vendors were not careful about the way they were protecting their own automatic update system, that could be a problem. Right. Hasn't happened yet to my knowledge. Todd in New York shares a very interesting VPN story that raised some questions. He says, guys, I love the show, loyal listeners, so on and so forth. I have a service that is offered through my condo, Verizon Avenue, and I've been suspect for some time that they were throttling my service. Oh, his ISP is through his uh, condo. I supposedly have one megabit down, which isn't very much, but for some time, I've had certain music services, Rhapsody, that once worked quite well in this building until all of a sudden they started to have horrible buffering issues where songs would stop in the middle multiple times a song. I chalked this up to something that had changed on the side of the music provider, but today I learned otherwise. I've been working freelance to set up an Astaro security gateway, yay, for a client that I consult for. In testing out the Astaro appliance I installed that I installed in the client's office this past weekend, I noticed something odd. I was connected into their network over VPN with all of my internet traffic routed through the VPN, when, forgetting that I was still connected, I fired up the aforementioned music service. To my amazement, it worked fine. So he's on the same connection. It's just VPN'd. Yep. Songs flowed like butter with that one hiccup, which had been more than commonplace before. It was the point where literally I could not listen to a streaming song for more than 30 seconds before it would stop as the rest of the song buffered. Now, through the VPN, it was great. I could even download stuff in the background Still playing songs in the foreground. I really, I mean, this has been a problem for a while, so I really noticed the improvement. So in order to test, I dropped the VPN connection and my song playing ability immediately dropped back to the abysmal zone. VPN back on, all was good. So two questions. First of all, is Verizon throttling to push their faster Fios service? If so, tisk tisk. And suddenly, does a secure SSL tunnel get around this problem? Obviously, going through a tunnel... I'm getting reduced throughput. After all, I have the same amount of bandwidth and I'm pushing through another network and then back out. But is the fact that this traffic is encrypted getting around their bandwidth limiting countermeasures? I love the show. Spinrite saved me on numerous occasions. And Leo is the only reason I'm still an IT professional. Thanks for your insight. P.S. The Astaro Security Gateway is a godsend and has made me and my client very happy and safe campers. We like to hear that. That's great. So that's a really good test. Bad bandwidth? Run on a VPN? It's better. Isn't that interesting? So what this, first of all, to answer his question, um, he's absolutely correct that um, if an ISP or or anyone out on the Internet were trying to do application specific throttling where they're going to where they're going to throttle only some traffic and not others, they need to see the traffic and you cannot see traffic in a VPN. Because every packet is individually encrypted, so it looks like just it, lo- it lo- looks like literally, as we've talked about often, encryption is noise. It is absolutely random noise, and so 
the 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 VPN wrapper encrypts the the in basically all of the packet, including the source and destination port. So the the particular protocol that you're transferring, whether it's you know email or web or or you know streaming audio, any ports associated with those protocols are obscured completely within the encrypted VPN tunnel. So if and we don't know for for sure that this is going on, that Verizon is doing this, but but if they wanted to, they would bandwidth limit based on some aspects of the traffic that their that their deep packet inspection would be identifying. And so they would hamper that. They're unable to do so if that traffic is is being enclosed in a VPN tunnel. And I mean, based on the evidence that that um, that uh, uh, Todd has pretty shared clear. with us, yeah. it really looks like that's what's going on. They're probably using you know some sort of packet sniffing, or you know, actually on streaming audio, there's a it's a different port, so they could even be watching the port. That's all it would take. It would be saying, okay, we're just going to you know like give low priority to this port, right. you know, to traffic on this port. Sure, we'll let people transit it. But, you know, if we're busy, we've got other things to do, we'll just drop some of those packets and, and worry, you know, and let them worry about getting them resent later, which is, you know, all it takes to, you know, to, to, to throttle and, uh, and, and cause problems for that kind of traffic. That happens to uh, our streams. Um, we have uh, an audio stream on port 80, so that, uh, as well as port 8000. So that's kind of eliminates that because you don't usually throttle port 80. That's the web surfing port. But right. our video, our, our, our you know, Twit Live video is on a different port, uh, although it's got some smart technology in there that will change ports depending on, on how, it, uh, how it's being handled. It ultimately ends up on port 80 if it has to. John Ratzlaff in Candler, North Carolina, wonders about e-ink. I wonder, too. E-ink. Hi, Leo and Steve. You mentioned the new Kindle, too. You said it has 16 levels of gray. How are they doing that? My understanding of how e-ink works is it consists of microscopic balls, white on one side, black on the other, which rotate in place according to the charge applied, which would result in either black or white. How do you get levels of gray? Dithering? Yes. Um, it's right? interesting. If we're talking about, well, first of all, there's not, there's not just one kind of e-ink. There are, there are a number of different technologies um, the early stuff did use bicolored spheres, oh, really? which, which were black on one side, white on the other, and they they and they were suspended in an oil suspension and then rotated electrostatically so that their their white front the the, the white side the white hemisphere was uh, aimed at, at at the reader or the black hemisphere was so that was that technology. However, in the case of the of the current E ink that is used in the Sony readers and also in the um, in the Kindles, they use an entirely different approach. Oh, um, they they have a a high number of little black particles, so, and and those black particles are pushed to the front of the screen or pulled to the back. And so you get a somewhat lower contrast ratio, but um, but that's the technology they use is a is a, a very high number of black particles within each pixel region, 
And in fact, if you've if you've ever had an occasion to look at the at the Sony or the Apple screen, for example, through a jeweler's loop um, or you know a good magnifying glass, you can see sort of dust. It's it's like not all the black particles obeyed their instruction to go to the back of the bus and and get out of sight um, uh, often. And, and in fact, you know, you and I have talked about how there's sometimes is a ghost left behind. When you turn the page, you can see sort of a, a, a dim ghost of the prior uh, of the contents of the prior page. And that's literally it's, uh, it's a little bit sort of reminiscent of, of, of phosphorescence and the way phosphor fades. But it's just that there is, you know, the the greatest percentage of the particles did make the migration but you know some didn't because it's it's sort of a um uh a, a statistical thing so what they're doing in order in this in the case of the sony reader and the in the kindle is they're they're deliberately pulling different percentages of the particles away by having you know carefully designed their their technology so that so that they're able to get, you know, shades of, of, of particle propagation within a, a single pixel. So it's a it's a cool technology. Very, very interesting. So this was so I see I, I never really was aware of how they did. I thought it was that charged ball thing too. So it's uh it's more like an etch a sketch. Yes, it's very much very much like an etch a sketch. Um with static. Uh, with 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 electrostatics, yeah. Also, frankly, a little bit like how a laser printer works, isn't it? Uh, I mean, yeah. in effect, because it uses electric, it charges the drum, which attracts yep. the toner, and 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 exactly, and and a laser printer has you know ink in the form of so-called toner, which is super small little black particles, <laughs> which and anybody's so yeah. ever gotten in his hands knows. Very much like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they charge it. It attracts the particles in the places that you want, and they, and of course, a laser printer can do really good grayscale. We'll get ours in a week. We'll we'll give you our review. <laughs> yes, not, probably not in time for the next uh, security now, but but at the one after. Yep. Regina Ganaway, Great Mills, Maryland, wonders if the Sony PRS five hundred five is more secure than a Kindle. It's uh, Sony's answer to the Kindle. Actually, predates the Kindle. Dear Stephen Lee, I love the show. On episode one eighty three, you both both expressed your love for the Kindle and your not so glowing opinion of the Sony ebook reader. I have a security related question. Uh, which may reason rather why why I prefer the Sony ebook reader to the Kindle. My main reason for purchasing the ebook reader from Sony is to have a compact way to read documents for my job. They're usually in Microsoft Word format or PDF format. Putting them on uh, my Sony ebook reader helps reduce the weight of how much I have to carry around to read in those spare moments here and there, not to mention saving trees. I also convert PowerPoint documents to PDF, read them on the reader as well. Big lifesaver there. My Sony software allows me to just drag and drop these formats onto my PRS505 reader. The document never leaves my control. My understanding is the Kindle requires users to send the document to Kindle.com, where they convert it to their proprietary format. Then they will send a newly formatted document back to the Kindle device. I can't do that. I work for a government agency, and I, I can't email documents to a third party to be converted to work on the ebook reader. I have to be able to maintain control of the documents for various reasons. Usually, it's proprietary information. Therefore, I like the fact that I could transfer a document to my ebook reader without losing control over it. Don't you think this is a good reason to recommend the Sony ebook reader? Well, I know you know the answer to this, Leo. I do. Yep. Um, and uh, I just wanted to 
to put Regina's mind at rest, you can do exactly the same thing with the Kindle that you do with the Sony. You've done when a lot you, of research on getting stuff onto the uh, both the Kindle and the Sony. Yeah, when you when you when you plug the the Kindle which has a USB connection into your computer, it switches it into drive mode and it looks not like a reader but just like a drive, just like a thumb drive to your computer and all your documents are there. You can browse them with Explorer, you can you can easily drag and drop documents onto the Kindle. Then when you pull it off and 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 essentially disconnect it from the computer, it looks through um, to see what you've done and registers them and puts them on the Kindle's table of contents. So essentially, you're able to again to do exactly with the Kindle what you can with the Sony. Now the Kindle doesn't read PDF format, but you can convert the PDF to the AZW format the Kindle uses. Yep. What do you recommend? Do you have you tried that? Do, what do you recommend to do that? Um, there's a Gee, it's been so long now since I looked. Uh, there, uh, Amazon Moby, Moby Pocket is the format. That's it. Okay. And the Moby, there's a Moby Pocket. It was last. It was a version four point something, and that was the authoring tool. Which and it does a great job. I mean, it's what Amazon uses. Um, you know, and they and they bought Moby uh, at the beginning of their whole uh, ebook move. Um, and so, yes, you're absolutely able to to create content for the. For the, for the Sony. I mean, for the Kindle. Okay. And, you know, it just requires downloading some software to, yep. to get it. But, no, but, but, you know, Regina's concern was that she was losing control of it um, right. for, for legal reasons. And in, in this case, at no point do, is, is it out of her control. Well, I, we liked it. We, we, we didn't pan the ebook reader by any means. No, no, not at all. I mean, we both had both versions of the Sony yeah. and loved it until the Kindle came out. And, and, and it's mostly Kindle, because of the wireless, right? That we like the Kindle I mean, Specifically because yeah. of the wireless. I mean, yeah. for me, that did it. And in fact, there was an article in this, this week's Economist where they were wondering whether e-books might be the salvation of newspapers. Yeah. Because, because so many people are reading newspapers now on their Kindle because of the Wi-Fi, I mean the fact that you can just—I mean the the um, well the wireless the right. the cell system that you can turn it on and get all your magazines and newspapers updated in the morning and then read them all day—it's just spectacular. And they keep adding. Uh, they just added the New Yorker, which was was really my one true dream. And uh, oh no, kidding! I didn't know they had. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's really we get we subscribe to it, but but between my wife and my daughter, I never really get a copy. <laughs> when Abby, you know, she's in France, but when she was home, she would just literally she, as soon as we'd come, she would take it upstairs, and we'd never see it again. Yeah, which I really couldn't very well complain about. I mean, not because she's she's reading the New Yorker. And, and that's eating. great. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but uh, so now my wife does kind of the same thing. But now I have my copy of my Kindle, and I get the Atlantic on it and Salon and. Yeah, I want the Economist. The Economist is I would still love not. it. But you yeah. know, the fact that the the New Yorker has has jumped it, it indicates to me that others will. You know, there was a great uh, study. Somebody did a little math on the costs of printing the New York Times, and estimated for this for the the Times has said we have about eight hundred thousand people who have subscribed for more than two years. This is the dedicated group that the the regular subscribers. Somebody estimated that the cost for this. Uh, 800,000 subscribers was about $600 million a year in paper, ink, wow. and trucks. Wow. And then figured, you know, you could give each one of them a Kindle and deliver it to the Kindle. It would cost half as much in one year. It would cost $300 million. Wow. Yeah. I, that's, that's, the, that's, the under, that's the underline on this. I mean, every, well, I prefer a paper, but 
and newsprint is just gross too. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, I like reading it. I like have spread it out on the table yeah. and reading it. But you know, those times uh, it's just too expensive. Yeah. Mark Smith in San Luis Obispo, California, makes some very good points about WPA Wi-Fi security. Our last question, Steve. He says, hi, Stephen Leo. I just finished episode 182. You guys really harped on opus open access points, complaining about the security or lack thereof when you don't have WPA turned on. I would argue that every link in the path between you and whomever you're talking to, mail server, web server, IRC, whatever, is untrusted, not just the final wireless link. If there's something you consider to be sensitive that should be protected, protect it at the application layer, SMTP over TLS, HTTPS, IMAPS, etc. If you're already doing this, then the data on the wireless link is already protected. This is kind of like our question uh, about the VPN. A little bit, yeah. There are other things that WPA gets you, most notably access control to your access point, for which it's very well suited. But in many cases, an open AP is precisely what you want, a coffee shop, a visitor's network, in an office. If you're correctly protecting your application layer, you shouldn't be afraid of using an open access point. Let me know if you disagree or if I'm missing something. Well, um, again, like I said, Mark Smith makes some very good points about WPA Wi-Fi security. Um, and I, the, only, the only lesson here for our listeners is, once again, be aware of your situation. Um, uh, for example, Starbucks, in my case, dropped their T-Mobile relationship, which ended officially at the end of the year in favor of AT&T. There was an overlap of about, I don't know, four or five months when they announced that they were going to be switching to AT&T service. T-Mobile was secure. AT&T is not. It's wide open. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking, you know, I ought to just put a Wi-Fi sniffer on and, you know, hang out at Starbucks for a few hours and just sort of see what's going on. Just as a, <laughs> as a little bit of a, you know, as a lesson to, you know, why open Wi-Fi is a problem. Because, right. you know, I'd, I'd bet with all the UCI students that are there, um, it would be an eye-opening um, bit of sniffing of, of traffic. And I don't know that any of them are aware that, you know, that, that there is no encryption. They have to log in through the AT&T and they may think, oh, you know, I'm logging in, I'm encrypted. But the but there's no encryption being used on the radio um, now in Starbucks stores, which, you know, I think is a real problem. Again, if people knew, that's fine. But it, it's, 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 you know, matching up um, the vulnerability and the environment to, to what it is that you are using that environment for. And um, and so I I mean I I understand Mark's point that the WPA is obviously it's super useful for authentication because it's it's very strong authentication um, and open Wi-Fi has a place as long as the the dangers are properly understood. Yeah, that's the key, and I think people don't, as you say, people don't really. Um... So I use WPA for those two reasons. One, to keep people from using my access point. Right. Uh, and there's a, there's a real problem with that because if your neighbor's using your access point and doing something illegal, uh, you're liable. The, right. the, the ISP is going to contact you, not him. Well, so, and, and, and we've talked about how, you know, that's something where 
where MAC address filtering, which is available probably now on, on all consumer routers, you know, MAC address filtering, if, if you really wanted to leave your Wi-Fi open for some reason, MAC address filtering would prevent inadvertent use, but it would not prevent someone deliberately, you know, saying, oh, look, I really want to use Leo's open Wi-Fi. Uh, and gee, he seems to be only protecting it with MAC address filtering. So they just capture some packets out of the air and use, you know, switch their their adapter to use one of the authorized Macs, and then you know they're on your network, right? And then of course the uh, the encryption in case I forget to encrypt at the application layer. Yeah. Again, um, uh, it seems to me if the, the okay. So here's the rule: if you if you have no reason not to be running WPA, run WPA. If you have no reason right. not to encrypt. <laughs> right. Why not? Exactly. Absolutely encrypt. So, you know, so I would say it's always a good thing. It gives you authentication. It protects your information. You don't have to worry about whether you, you're running over a separate, you know, TLS, SSL, HTTPS, IMAPS, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's. That's, you know, the, the, the wireless aspect of your work is encrypted. And we know that, you know, having the most security possible is, is more security than, than not. Than not. And so, you know, and, and again, sure, if there's an application where you can't have encryption, and, and, you know, maybe Mark is also reacting to the question that was asked a couple of weeks ago by the guy who was having to work in an office where they where their Wi-Fi was open. So he was saying, look, I don't want to give all of them a, a hard time. I just want to protect myself because I recognize somebody outside could be sniffing my traffic and I'd rather they, they not. So for him, using a VPN temporarily made sense. And so he was in an environment where he could not use WPA security. So I would say if you can, by all means, do it. There's, okay. there's, you know, there, there's, aside from a little bit of inconvenience for, for having to give everyone the WPA key, um, it, it just makes sense to do it. I, I will give you another example of risk. Uh, FTP. Unless you're using secure FTP, SFTP, you're sending passwords in the clear. And right. a lot of spy cam, you know, uh, <laughs> I used to use a, uh, you know, a program that would send a picture of me every 15 seconds to this server and you could watch me before we were doing all of this. Uh, most of those don't use SFTP. So you're right. sending every 15 seconds. You're sending the password to your server in the clear. Oh. Um, and, and in fact, some of the uploading that we do is not. I, I do SFTP and SSH whenever I can. But some of the servers we use, the commercial servers that we upload our podcast to, for instance, don't use SFTP. So if I use them over an open Wi-Fi access point, I would be people could go in to delete podcasts and all sorts of stuff. Well, yeah, I think there's 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 two classifications of attack. There's opportunistic attack and there's directed and focused. You know, opportunistic would be somebody sitting with a laptop at Starbucks sucking in all the traffic um, and and, you know, seeing what they can collect. And then, you know, a directed attack is somebody who decides, hey, I'm going to get Leo. You know, I mean, I, you know, for whatever reason, I want to do that. And so, you know, they'd, they'd arrange to sniff all the traffic on your on your various links, looking for that one time 
when, for whatever reason, you know, somebody was doing a transfer who didn't who didn't know how to bring up an SSH tunnel first or, or something like that. And they said, aha, we caught some information in the clear. Now we're going to be able to leverage that in order to go further. So, you know, again, being as secure as you can all the time, I think, is, is what's most prudent. I agree. Why not? Yeah, After exactly. All. Why not? You know, we have the tools. Use them. We have no script. Turn it on. Turn it off well, when I, it's in your way. I can but, think of a reason know? not to use that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another matter entirely for another day. Yeah, Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, thank you so much, Steve Gibson. He's done it again. Uh, another marathon episode, but there was a lot to talk about today. Eat it in two bites if it's too much for you to digest in one. You will find transcripts online at grc.com along with 16 kilobit versions of this file to save bandwidth. Uh, and, of course, all of Steve's great software, starting with Spinrite, the world's best disk recovery and maintenance utility, but also free stuff like Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Decobobulator, Wismo, and on and on and on. GRC. Oh, Leo, a very cool tool coming. This the, the DNS benchmark I'm working on, that's where all my time has been going um, when I'm not on eBay. Uh <laughs> <laughs> And uh, when's spin right for PDP eight coming out? That's what I want. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's uh, this little DNS benchmark is going to be a popular gizmo. Oh, neat. just you run it. Uh, it suck. It sucks in a list of well, it, it contains a list of of all the known public DNS servers and instantly. Well, very quickly profiles their performance versus all the ones that you're currently using huh. and ranks them with graphs and statistics oh, and things. Oh, it's going to be very cool. Do you, you, you probably program like some people do crossword puzzles. It's just your recreation. Yeah. I just yeah. love it. I mean, I just, yeah, yeah. that's what I you really, do. I really do. Yeah. Always great, Steve. Thanks so even much. Ancient, even ancient computers with wacky <laughs> octal codes and 12 bits. It's like, whoa. I can't wait to that episode. That's one week. be a great episode. Yeah, that'll be a, I, a week from today, uh, Thursday the 26th at 2 p.m. Uh, Pacific time, 5 p.m. Eastern time on live.twit.tv. But we will also take the audio of it and put it out as a Security Now special. That's a perfect idea. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. On Security Now. Security Now.